On this week in Enterprise Tech, we have Mr. Curtis Franklin and Mr. Brian Chi back on the show today. Now, ebooks have evolved into a huge market. You actually might be surprised on the big business of library ebooks. That's right, library ebooks. We'll get into that discussion. Plus, we have a really great guest today, John Cusser. He's the Senior VP of Product Management at Salesforce, and he's going to take us through some of the latest and greatest tools to help you automate your workflows and business processes. You definitely shouldn't miss it. Twiet on the set. Podcasts you love from people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twiet. This week in Enterprise Tech, episode four seventy one, recorded December third, twenty twenty one. Einstein automates your world. This episode of This Week in Enterprise Tech is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Start or advance your IT career with the wonderful instructors of IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash enterprise for an additional 30% off all consumer subscriptions for the lifetime of your active subscription when you use code enterprise30 at checkout. And by Worldwide Technology, a platinum IBM business partner. With an innovative culture, thousands of IT engineers, application developers, unmatched labs, integration centers for testing and deploying technology at scale, WWT helps customers bridge the gap between strategy and execution. To learn more about WWT, visit WWT.com slash twit. And by PlexTrack a powerful yet simple security management platform that helps you to get the real cybersecurity work done. With PlexTrack, you'll streamline your assessments, analytics, and reporting. Visit PlexTrack.com slash twit and claim your free month. Welcome to Twiet This Week in Enterprise Tech, the show that is dedicated to you, the enterprise professional, the IT pro, and that geek who just wants to know how this world is connected. I'm your host, Louis Maresca, your guide through this big world of the enterprise. But I definitely can't guide you by myself. I need to bring in the professionals, the experts in their field. So I got their very own Mr. Brian Chi. He's net architect at Sky Fiber and all around tech geek. Now, Chibert, it's great to have you back. It's been a couple of weeks. How you been doing? I'm doing great. We had a great time in Washington, D.C., and I fulfilled my promise um, pre- in a previous life, I worked as senior computer scientist for GSA Office of Information Security. And sadly, my favorite boss was a victim on 9-11. And Ms. Janet Scott was working for DISA and unfor- was an unfortunate victim. I made a promise to myself and to her that I'd go and visit her memorial, which is actually some gorgeous um, swooping benches with underlighting. Uh, but sadly, the memorial was closed due to oh. the pandemic. So I was only able to see it off in the distance. But it was uh, a good trip anyway. And I also said goodbye and hello to a couple of um, friends. Actually, some folks that used to babysit me um, when I was wow. very, very young that I lost it in during the Vietnam conflict. So it was a very nice visit to a lot of memorials. It was. I'm just glad to have you guys back. Well, speaking of coming back, we have to welcome back our very own Mr. Curtis Franklin. He's senior analyst at Omdia. Curtis, it's only been two weeks, but it feels too long. How have you been? Well, I've been fine. I was with uh, Brian for uh, the boss of uh, the Washington, D.C. trip. We had a great time 
with them. It's good to be back, and um, I'm hitting the ground running. I've got a lot of research coming up, massive projects that will get kicked off at the beginning of the year. Uh, still one more big webinar on how to figure out whether your training is working coming up in a couple of weeks. And uh, believe it or not, already starting to get some invitations and queries about the face-to-face conference at RSA this year. That's going to be happening in early February, and uh, hopefully it will be a uh, a good meeting of the cybersecurity world out there in San Francisco. I hope so, too. They're coming back. They're coming back. Thanks for being here, guys. Well, speaking of hitting the ground running, we do have lots to talk about today. Now, you, you might read ebooks. I know I do. And you might be surprised about the big business of library ebooks. That's right. Increasingly, books are something that libraries do not own, but they actually borrow from the companies and corporations that do. We'll get into that discussion. Now, we have a really great guest today, John Cusera. He's Senior VP of Product Management at Salesforce. He's going to take us through some of the latest and greatest tools to help you automate your workflows and business processes. So stick around. We have lots to talk about there. But before we get into all that goodness, let's go ahead and jump into this week's news blips. Now, we talk about it all the time here on Twiet. Your network is only as good as your weakest link, and that can be your users. Well, in Ubiquiti's case, it was an employee. That's right. Nicholas Sharp, a former employee of networking device maker Ubiquiti, was arrested and charged this week with data theft and attempting to extort his employer with posing as a whistleblower and an anonymous hacker. Now, as legend, Nicholas Sharp exploited his access as a trusted insider to steal gigabytes of confidential data from his employer, then posing as an anonymous hacker, sent the company a nearly $2 million ransom demand. Sounds like a movie script. Now, according to the indictment, Sharp stole gigabytes of confidential data from Ubiquiti's AWS and GitHub infrastructure using his cloud administrator credentials, cloning hundreds of GitHub repositories over SSH. Now, throughout this process, the defendant tried hiding his home IP address using Surfshark's VPN services. However, his actual location was exposed after a temporary internet outage. Whoops. Now, to hide his malicious activity, Sharp also altered log retention policies and other files that would help expose his identity during the subsequent incident investigation. Now, his ransom note demanded almost $2 million in exchange for returning the stolen files and the identification of a remaining vulnerability. The company, of course, refused. Interesting. Now, after his extortion attempts failed, Sharp shared information with the media while pretending to be a whistleblower and accusing the company of downplaying the incident. This caused Ubiquiti's stock price to fall roughly 20% from 349 on March 30th to 290 on April 1st, amounting to losses over $4 billion in market capitalization. Now, Sharp is charged with four counts and is facing maximum sentences of 37 years in prison if found guilty. As if you needed another reason or proof, crime doesn't pay. Well, just in time for the holidays, there's a new ransomware variant that could become the next big threat. Researchers from Symantec say a threat actor who's been mounting targeted attacks against U.S. organizations since at least August recently began to use new ransomware called Yan Luwang in its campaigns. The threat actor was previously linked to attacks involving the use of another ransomware family called ThiefLock, which is available via a ransomware-as-a-service operation called the Canthroid Group. The ThiefLock affiliate appears to have now switched to the rival Yan Luwang ransomware strain and is currently the only attack group using the malware. 
Its targets include organizations in the financial services industry and in the manufacturing, IT services, and engineering sectors. Now, Yan Luowang is one of among numerous new ransomware variants that have surfaced this year amid continuing law enforcement takedowns of major ransomware operators uh, like those behind the Revil and Klopp variants. Many of the new ransomware strains have been used in so-called double extortion attacks where threat actors have encrypted and stolen sensitive enterprise data as well as threatened to leak the data to try to extort money from the victims. Symantec's investigation of Yan Luowang activity showed the former ThiefLock affiliate is using a variety of legitimate and open source tools in its campaigns to distribute the ransomware. This has included the use of PowerShell to download a backdoor called Bazaar Loader for assisting with initial reconnaissance and the subsequent delivery of a legitimate remote access to called ConnectWise. The relentless ransomware onslaught shows little signs of slowing amid law enforcement crackdowns and better enterprise defenses that have forced many ransomware groups to evolve and adapt their strategies. Now, the leaks themselves and the attacks haven't slowed down dramatically. Most groups now employ the hack and leak business model, sometimes referred to as double extortion, following in the footsteps of the Maze Group, who began doing this as early and as far back as 2019. Well, it's no surprise. I just moved from Hawaii, where a lot of people don't realize whole house HVAC was extremely rare. So one of the things that we've been learning about dealing with our sealed up environment was things like carbon monoxide. Well, carbon monoxide detectors are necessary or should be necessary if you use a furnace that uses gas or oil or a fireplace and then radon detectors from underground seepage. So while the blaring alarm of a traditional unit might sound like a solution, what if your house rambles a bit or is multiple levels or a member of your household is hard of hearing? The suggestion of this story is that smart units like the one from Nest or First Alert go a step further and link to your Amazon or Google smart device to handle more advanced alerting via whole house announcements and or alerts on your phone. Well, the Amazon Echo Guard a standard feature sounds like a perfect solution, but only listens for those alarms when it's in away mode. So what happens? What do you do if you're home and the alarms go off and you don't hear it? Well, as an afterthought, there is a Kickstarter by a company called Roost, R-O-O-S-T, and it's making a smart 9-volt battery format but it's made of lithium cells, so it has a nice long life, that are designed for smoke alarms that will listen for the beeping of the alarm and send alerts to your phone via the house Wi-Fi. Well, at this moment, it's only for smoke alarms, but a smart battery could very well be a great solution for advanced monitoring of old standalone standalone warning devices. Version 2 will be out soon, which makes setup a bunch easier, but still requires IFTTT to integrate with anything other than just sending a simple SMS message. Now, in 2021 alone, there have been plenty of motivators from organizations to spend more time and money on security. We all know that. Well, according to a new report by Symmetry Systems and Osterman Research, organizations 
plan to deploy zero trust architecture with 53% of respondents citing high profile ransomware attacks as their primary motivator. Now, incorporating zero trust principles in a modern data security ensures no point of failure when systems are breached. Now, zero trust principles can ensure that even if an attacker knows the database location or IP, username and password, they can't use that information to access privileged information given to specific application roles, identity, and access management, and cloud actually network perimeters as well. Now, according to the report, a zero trust architecture is expected to increase cyber security protections effectiveness to stop data breaches by 144%. That's pretty good. Now, the report also credits an emphasis on securing customer data as another motivator behind enterprise-wide deployment. Now, other key highlights from respondents include barriers encountered when deploying a zero-trust architecture, their confidence level in existing cybersecurity protections, the top 10 data sources in the need of protection, and the total IT budget allocated for zero-trust initiatives by year. Now, last last episode, Oliver and I actually talked regarding a recent report showing organizations and actually how they are focusing less money and not enough time on cybersecurity. Now, one thing that might get your C-suite to budge a dime here is that 144% return on investment when moving to zero trust. Well, folks, that does it for the blips. Next up, we have the bites. But before we get to the bites, we do have to thank a really great sponsor of This Week in Enterprise Tech, and that's IT Pro TV. Now, it's a wonderful time to be in IT. Now, if you're looking to break into one of the many IT careers out there, or you're already a seasoned IT professional, IT Pro TV has something for each and every one of you. Now, IT Pro TV has the certificates you need to be desirable to employers and to level up in your current positions. Now, IT is constantly changing, and IT Pro TV keeps up with all the new technologies and certifications. Now, the best part is you can watch it in 20 to 30 minute increments. So it's definitely going to work with anyone's schedule. Now, they have seven studios and film Monday through Friday with their enthusiastic edutainers. They have the most up-to-date content with every vendor and skill. Now, their courses go from the studio to their course library in just 24 hours. And they make sure that you're prepared for your exams with their virtual labs and practice tests. Now, to wrap up 2021, IT Pro TV is focusing on Python for December's theme. Python. Now, check out their webinar on December 9th at 2 p.m. Eastern. Most in-demand IT jobs for 2022 with Ronnie Wong. You don't want to miss that for sure. Now, the weekend of December 11th and 12th is their free weekend featuring courses, Introduction to Programming Using Python, Python Programming, Object-Oriented Python, Python Data Model, Python for Security. Great courses there. Start or advance your IT career with the wonderful instructors of IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash enterprise for an additional 30% off all consumer subscriptions for the lifetime of your active subscription when you use code enterprise30. That's itpro.tv slash enterprise and use code enterprise30 for an additional 30% off for the lifetime of your active subscription. IT Pro TV, build or expand your IT career and enjoy the journey. And we thank IT Pro TV for their support of This Week in Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, it's now time for the bites. Now, ebooks are a big business. We all know that, but there's a surprising big business around library ebooks. That's right. And Chebert is going to take us through it. Chebert? Well, to start this off, I'm going to be upfront. My wife used to be the university librarian for Hawaii Pacific University. And as such, she was part of a consortium of libraries in Hawaii that would band together and use their collective 
um, buying power, shall we say, to put the arm on distributors to try and reduce the cost of running their libraries. Well, this is an interesting article, and it's from the folks at The New Yorker. And I'm going to read the first two paragraphs, and then we'll kind of go. So Steve Potash, the bearded and respectable bespectacled president and CEO of Overdrive, spent the second week of March 2020, now mark that date, March 2020, on a business trip in New York City. Overdrive distributes ebooks and audiobooks, i.e. digital content, in New York. Podash met with two clients, the New York Public Library and Hofton Mifflin Harcourt. By then, Podash had already heard what he described to the author as heart-wrenching stories from colleagues in China about neighborhoods that were shut down owing to the coronavirus. He had an inkling that his business might be in for big changes when towards the end of the week on March 13th, the New York Public Library closed down and issued a statement. The responsible thing to do and the best way to serve our patrons right now is to help minimize the spread of COVID-19. The library added, we will continue to offer access to e-books. Well, the sudden shift to ebooks had enormous practical and financial implications for Overdrive and for other digital content distributors. Now, here's the thing that makes this story really interesting. There is a legal principle called the first sale doctrine that libraries have the right to lend those books to any number of readers free of charge. However, the first sale doctrine does not apply to digital content. For the most part, publishers do not sell their ebooks or audiobooks to libraries. They sell digital distribution rights to third party vendors such as Overdrive, and then they sell the rights to libraries. These rights often have an expiration date, and they make library ebooks a lot more expensive in general than print books. Well, here's the trick. Sometimes that duration is X number of loans. It might be 10, it might be 20, it might be 60, it might be 100. But the whole idea is <clears throat> under a normal circumstance at a library, the only time a book is retired is when it can no longer stay together. You know, they repair them as much as possible. In the case of ebooks, <clears throat> there is an artificial life set on those things and they are not cheap in fact library copies tend to be dramatically more expensive than what you would buy even from amazon because there's an expectation that more people will be borrowing them through the ebook offerings of various libraries keep that in mind that also applies to videos so when you accuse a librarian of not being you know, having enough copies, keep in mind, they may be paying 10 times what you ha would have to pay. Well, anyway, <clears throat> this story keeps going on. And with the pandemic going, gr still going great guns in New York City and various other large metropolitan areas, <clears throat> ebooks are a problem. So a consumer ebook, just for example, might be $9.99. But by the time it gets to a library, it might be four or five hundred. Ooh, ouch. It all depends on the title and distribution. <clears throat> now, keep in mind, this is also things like databases. If you're looking, trying to look up an academic journal article, um, those databases, even though 
the journal article was published publicly. It's sold by a service that charges a lot of money and they continue to charge lots of money. So anyway, here we go again. So the bottom bottom line is that libraries in general are being hit with dramatically reduced budgets and all too many schools, you know, K through 12 schools are playing the game of removing real librarians and replacing them with part-time teachers with a huge reduction in depth of curated collections. Now, this is things like, are we going to have enough science reference books to be able to do science papers? Are we going to have enough history books to represent things? And this is where I'm going to kind of get up on a soapbox. Anyway, This article is more about opinions and it is the consumers that actually have a little bit of sway on how we do things. Do you buy? Do you not buy? Do you do anything? Kurt and I both have authored a couple of books. At the time, it wasn't really brought to our attention that we were contributing to this problem because we did not put it into our contract. However, Kurt and I have since had a conversation on, gee, wouldn't it be great if our next set of books, which are targeted at young adults, had a clause in the contract to make sure that our books were affordable for middle schools and so forth. So I'm going to bring Kurt in for the other side of that argument, other side of that conversation, and Kurt, now that you're doing more stuff for Amdia and various other places, what do you think? Are are we still thinking we need to go and use what little power we have as authors to try and make our titles more available in the libraries? Well, you know, here a whole bunch of full disclosure is required because, as Brian said, I am an author. Therefore, uh, I like it when people buy more copies of books with my name on the cover. Um, I have, for much of my career, worked for publishers. As a matter of fact, the company that I work for, uh, Omdia, is owned by Informa, which, among other things, owns Taylor & Francis, which is a large uh, academic and scientific world uh, publisher. So, you know, I, this is one where I can see a lot of different angles. The big thing is, yes, I want people to be able to read my books, and I think a more literate population is a good thing. Uh, Our own public library here in Orange County, Florida, has a substantial e-book program. Uh, So I think that it is reasonable to say that libraries should compensate uh, the publishers and therefore the authors, similarly to how they do with um, with paper books. And I can think of a number of ways to do that among them, uh, going out and saying that if you buy one ebook, then you can loan it out to one patron at a time. And that's it. The problem is that they are treating this 
like an academic paper. Now, if you're not in the academic world, I will tell you that academic papers are horrifically expensive to access. Uh, a uh, library at a university will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for subscriptions to the various academic journals for its scholars to use. And it looks like that's the model they've decided on for ebooks rather than the uh, trade paperback or trade edition that is normally sold to libraries. So I'm going to say that what we need is some sort of common sense and goodwill here. Libraries shouldn't buy one copy of an ebook and loan it out to 47 people at a time. If they're going to do that, then the author deserves compensation for at least, you know, 47 copies. Um, and that means that the publisher is going to get paid too. The problem is that our uh, copyright laws um, and most of the agreements we have that govern things like rights to songs, videos, books, etc., were developed before there were electronic copies. And in the rush to find a model for electronic copies, we have a bunch of people deciding that this is how they are not just going to be fairly compensated, but get bloody rich. Unfortunately, most of those people are not the actual content creators. And so we have this kind of problem. I am afraid it's going to take someone a bit smarter than I am to figure out the perfect solution uh, in some sort of Solomon-like decision on who gets paid how much. Uh, I want to bring up something else. Um, we've probably all heard of Project Gutenberg and also the Google um, Public Book Library project. And the whole idea is... <clears throat> They're concentrating on items that either don't have copyrights, they're in the public domain, or the copyrights have expired. <clears throat> so the classes, Shakespeare um, and various other um, various forms of the Bible and the Torah and various other things that don't have copyrights. <clears throat> so the idea was so that we would not lose these collection, you know, mankind's collection of knowledge, opinion, and so forth. <clears throat> it has run into problems, um, both funding and some of some people have decided that this wasn't fair usage. So it has lost a little bit of wind from its sales. Now, what I want to do is I want to toss this next one at Lou. Lou has He's got enough kids that he, he has his own basketball team and needing to purchase textbooks and reference books and educate his kids is going to be a real interesting problem as they grow up. And from a dad standpoint that is facing this, what do you think? This is your opinion, not Microsoft. This is Lou Maresca dad's opinion. Well, a dad's opinion knows that he's going to have to spend a lot of money in the coming future uh, for his kids' books. I know this because, you know, just going to college for me, you know, I used to spend two, three hundred dollars a book. Uh, you know, and, and this was, you know, sometimes 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds of books that I used to carry with me. So it doesn't really what 
you know, what subject you go or what subject matter you go into, um, it's going to cost a lot of money. And I think, you know, the interest is interesting because when ebooks first came out, you know, the, I thought the market thought that like people's lives, like build publishers' lives were over because they didn't know how to monetize on these things or and there wasn't any, um, you know, special, uh, protections for these types of books. And so people were sharing them online. They were, you know, people were uploading them to the devices. They were, everything was free. Uh, and so it's really interesting to hear around how the market has shifted. And I, I think that the challenge here is, you know, especially in academia, uh, people will still find it really difficult to to afford um, good education, even when they're try- trying to do things that are simpler, like for instance, eBooks, things that you know where they don't have to go and purchase a physical medium, where they can just put it on their phone, uh, which they have with them. Um, you know, they don't have to carry a backpack with them. They don't have to have a physical book. Um, now, the the idea of being able to uh, borrow these books, maybe even rent. Uh, is a really interesting facet here, Chiever, that I want to th- kind of throw back to you guys in, in, in regards to your particular books in education. Because I, I almost think that that's a way to kind of bring, be more inclusive when it comes to, to providing educational books because it allows people to buy them at a cheaper price, but then somehow offer it back. Uh, and I feel like that's really the future, especially in my case, where I'm going to have, you know, three, four, five kids going to education, finding an easier way for them to get that education by providing the medium in a much uh, simpler manner. seems like that might be the way to go. What do you guys think? Well, actually, I'm going to chime in here because this is what we did in the oceanography um, 3, 4, 3, 19 and 419 courses that I was helping to teach and design. We purposely, um, in that particular department, were more than a little upset at the cost of our knowledge, the books that we wrote, being charged to our students for astronomical prices. So as a kickback, the faculty, almost as one body, decided we're just going to write our own material. We're not going to copy or we're going to put it into the public domain um, attribution. And if someone sells it, we want to we want a portion type of license so that our students could have that free of charge so we could reduce the cost of their education. Um, this tends to be a pretty big trend, especially in the larger uh, research institutions, because we want the students to have the material to research from and learn from, but we don't want to make it so expensive that they have to do two or three jobs just to afford to go to school. Um, This is going to be something that a lot of schools are doing, and I think this needs to be a message to the publishers that you're killing the golden goose. Um, Faculty thinks, a lot of faculty say this is absolutely atrocious and wrong, and we're going to go do something about it. So all the material that I created for those two oceanography classes were given to the students. Now, having helped write some books, I obviously would love my royalties, but truth be told, I'm not going to get rich on that. And um, the publishers are fleecing us, the authors, the content creators, and we're, we're hitting a tipping point. I think something's going to change. I think people are going to get tired of this, and when... The only people that can make money publishing are people that throw out lots and lots and lots of titles that all look the same or someone manages to find something that 
is going to be a bestseller because you certainly can't make any money writing textbooks. And uh, what do you guys think? I, I've been on my soapbox a bit. You guys get any more opinions on this? Well, I'm I'm going to jump in and and come at it again from a couple of points of view. You know, I would love it if every student in a particular course bought a copy of our book. But the reality of uh, university life is that in most cases, uh, people will buy one copy, use it for a term, then sell it back to the bookstore who will sell it to the next crop of students. The second time the book is sold, the author, the publisher, get nothing. So, again, this is this is one of the, the ways in which uh, you have a, a, an economic system that is not entirely fair to all the participants in that system. Uh, you know, there was the idea with some of the copyright software, some of the digital protection software, that you could change that. You know, when someone bought a an ebook, it was locked to their device and they couldn't sell it or rent it or give it to anyone else. Um, th- this is this is tough because you have a lot of different players. And what we have is a system both uh, legally and uh, through copyright contracts and le- agreements that has been cobbled together. Uh, what it truly needs is a clean slate that starts over, but that is unlikely to happen because there are so many people who still make money from the current system. It's just the people making the money uh, aren't the creators, unless you know you do have a multi-million selling book. Uh, and the people who are paying the highest fees are the people who aren't rich but want to get information. In other words, people who can least afford to be the ones propping up the system. Fabulous. Hey, Lou, you know what I think? I think this is a topic that's going to keep coming back. But I think it's time to go say thank you to a sponsor and introduce our guest. What do you say? Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Thank you, guys. Well, next up is my favorite part of the show. We actually get to bring in a guest to drop some knowledge on the Twilight Ride. But before we get to that, we do have to thank another sponsor of This Week in Enterprise Tech, and that's Worldwide Technology, a platinum IBM business partner. Now, WWT is at the forefront of innovation, working with clients all over the world to transform their businesses. Now, at the heart of WWT lies their amazing Advanced Technology Center, or ATC. The ATC is a research and testing lab that brings together technologies from leading OEMs. There's more than a half a billion dollars in equipment invested in that lab. Now, the ATC offers hundreds of on-demand and schedulable labs. Their labs and proof of concept, such as the IBM Storage POC, represent the newest advances in multi-cloud architecture, security networking, primary and secondary storage, data analytics and AI, DevOps, and so much more. WWT's engineers and partners use the ATC to quickly spin up proofs of concept and pilots so customers can confidently select the best solutions. Now, this helps cut evaluation time from months weeks. Now, with the ATC, you can test out products and solutions before you go to market, access technical articles, expert insights, demonstration videos, white papers, hands-on labs, and other tools that help you stay up to date with the latest 
technology. Now, not only is the ATC a physical lab, but WWT has also virtualized it. Now, members of their ATC platform can access these amazing resources anywhere in the world 365 days a year. Now, while exploring the ATC platform, Make sure to check out WWT's events and communities for more opportunities to learn about technology trends and hear the latest research and insights from their experts. Whatever your business needs, WWT can deliver scalable, tried and tested, tailored solutions. WWT brings strategy and execution together to make a new world happen. To learn more about WWT, the ATC, and gain access to all their free resources, visit WWT.com slash twit and create an account on their atc platform that's wwt.com slash twit and we thank worldwide technology for their support of this week in enterprise tech well folks it's my favorite part of the show we actually get to bring a guest to drop some knowledge on the twyatt riot today we have john cusser he's senior vp of product management at salesforce welcome to the show john thank you for having me i'm delighted to be here now we, we love to have uh, Salesforce on because they are market leaders, trailblazers. And they always have really fascinating things to talk about. But before we get to that, our audience loves to hear people's origin stories. Can you maybe take us through a short journey through tech and what brought you to Salesforce? Sure. So in high school, I was a tinkerer. I'd break my compact computer. I'd reinstall Windows and do that over and over again. Then I started doing internships in college like UPS. There, I came into contact with Microsoft Access, and I was basically a citizen developer working with those tools, building applications. One of my first things that I did was they wanted me to do this tedious copy and paste thing for four hours every Friday. I said, okay, if you do it for two weeks, I'm going to automate this to a button click. And they ended up giving me Fridays off for the rest of the month when I did that in just a week. Then after that, I went over to Quaker Oats and Pepsi, where I basically use Access again to make a a not cloud version of like an ERP. I'd be emailing databases between. This is 19, uh, or sorry, 2003 technology, where I emailed databases in order to get the orders from the different people and see if we had enough inventory for the 2,000 different varieties of Pepsi labels. Then I took that to grad school which I used to then pivot into official technology where I was fortunate to get a role at Salesforce. And I've been there for 13 years, continuing to tinkering, building on our platform, which has been basically the original low code one. So I love that I was able to use all of that same type of stuff that I learned earlier, but in a bigger scheme where you can make database tables in the cloud, views in the cloud, logic and more. And that's been a really fun, engaging journey for me. All right, John, you just won me over because one of the teams I manage is actually the Access Desktop Engineering team. So uh, I feel really good right now. So thank you, John. <laughs> no, Salesforce is my heart for access. Right. I love it. I love hearing these stories. So Salesforce has has always been a really interesting company. I've been in. I was also. I lived in CRM engineering for about ten years, and you know, I think one of the big differentiators of Salesforce is obviously their Einstein product line. It's it's trailblazing. It's encapsulates encapsulates quite a bit of things. Um, there's lots of things out there. Now it was debuted back in 2016. Just in case the people at home don't know about Einstein, can you maybe take us through just just a high level of the Einstein product line, and then we'll go deeper into a lot of the stuff you're talking about, the process automation on, and, um, and, and workflows? Absolutely. So we introduced Einstein to make AI easy for non-data scientists. We saw that it was really hard to get the data 
to clean it, to understand what the difference between an algorithm and a logarithm in is. And with Einstein, you don't have to. And then about a year ago, we realized we had all these best-in-class capabilities for process automation, and we wanted to integrate those and talk about those in a unified way to this to the ecosystem. And so that's when we introduced Einstein Automate for end-to-end workflows and integration for companies. Now, Einstein Automate is a is a newer kind of branding for automation, but I seem to remember back even when Einstein's product lines came out. Uh, they, you know, they had done some acquisitions there, the MetaMind, the Relay IQ, the Beyond Core, and they were able to do things like recommend next steps for your business processes. How, how has it evolved into the Einstein Automate product, product lines? Sure. Um, what we did was we had a ton of different acquisitions that we wanted to deeply integrate into Salesforce that they could work together in a cohesive way. It's some of those that you talked about already, but also things like MuleSoft. MuleSoft is the best in class for API management and integration with all the different systems you might have, whether it's your ERPs like SAP and Oracle or others. We introduced a low-code tool with MuleSoft called MuleSoft Composer. There's further an acquisition that happened with uh, RPA that we're really excited about. Then we have all these great capabilities in the Salesforce platform. We then further had an acquisition that we put in industries that was Velocity. That gave us a bunch of digital form creation so that you could do things like replace your PDFs and do all these industry best practice automation capabilities. So what we've spent a lot of time doing is making these seamlessly integrated into a cohesive solution and then talking about them as this cohesive solution that it is under the Einstein Automate brand. It further includes all the great AI, things like your chatbots, Prediction Builder, which is low-code AI to do like churn analysis and much, much more. So uh, let's get a little bit in a little bit deeper in Einstein Automate and some of the uh, you know, capabilities within it. Now, I've, I've heard now, a lot of people tend, tend, tend sometimes get uh, confused with products like uh, the Azuko or Zapier, like integration, uh, con- you know, be able to construct workflows to be able to data flow things from one point to the other, and they can do some uh, actions and events in between, and they can make some decisions, and they they can use some machine learning there. How is how is this type of product differentiated from those? So what I think of as the fundamental Salesforce brand promise, we're the original low-code vendor. 20 years ago, we were doing low-code for database tables, for doing these web forms in the cloud. And so what our fundamental promise is, we have a huge suite of low-code automation and integration tools that you can also seamlessly extend with pro-code capabilities so you don't have to worry about limits. And so a lot of the solutions out there, like some of those you name, are basically like low-code only, or they might be pro-code only, or you have a low-code thing here and a pro-code thing there, but they don't necessarily work together. Fundamentally, this is bringing together all of those different ones for a huge variety of problems into one seamless suite. So MuleSoft Composer is the closest analog to things like Zapier. We want to make sure that your line of business business analysts, like your citizen developers like me 20 years ago, could do automation across systems without having to understand detailed uh, auth protocols or how do you handle like the response body stuff. Then we also have the pro code equivalent. You'll soft any point where you can integrate with anything. Then you have like things like RPA so that you can take actions in those cobalt systems and the big companies that they acquired 20 years ago. And you have a bunch more tools there, but fundamentally it's about having that end to end automation capability where you can start with low code and extend with pro where you need. 
Now, one of the interesting factors here around the kind of the Einstein brand is the fact that there is a lot of um, like machine learning and potentially even artificial intelligence behind that. How does that apply to the Einstein Onema? I know I, I read a lot about the fact that potentially they can recommend processes or even generate processes for you based off of the data data that you have. Is that true with, with Einstein Automate? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big innovations that our chatbots team has been working on is we get all of this really rich, unstructured data when the call center agents are communicating with customers and the sales reps are communicating with customers. It's your voice transcripts when you're using things like Service Cloud Voice. It's things like emails when you're emailing back and forth for a customer support issue. We have the chat transcripts when you're going back and forth with the people. We also have all those interactions for the self-service channels, like you're interacting with an Einstein AI-powered chatbot. We apply AI to all of that. We figure out what people are talking about. What are the insights? What are the process? What are the repeated things? And suggest, here's a self-service skill you want to add to your chatbot. Here's a process you want to automate so that we can help people figure out how are we interacting with the customers today? What are those efficiency opportunities and make it super easy to incorporate into these automated tools? It's a very interesting space. I hear a lot of companies trying to do, you know, smart workflows or smart processes where they detect you know, pre-existing things that you're doing or that you do over and over again. And they recommend these things. Now, that's very similar to robotic process automation, correct? Yeah, I think of robotic process automation as one tool in the tool bag you want for end to end automation. So let me tell you a story about a financial services customer. So what they wanted to do is replace 5,600 different insurance processes with Einstein Automate. What they wanted was to replace literally thousands of PDFs that they have on their website with digital forms so that you don't have to retype your name and your account and all of that. You reduce errors. So they're using Omni Studio for the digital forms. They then want to have a multi-user workflow so that they can route the right work to the right people with the right skills at the right time. They're using Orchestrator for that. Then at the end of that, they have 16 different systems just for changing addresses. A bunch of those were from acquisitions. 12 of them are API connected, so they're using MuleSoft for that API connectivity to those legacy systems. They have four that are literally Cobalt systems where they can't API connect it. They're using RPA to go in, say, okay, this is the policy I need to change. Do that clicking in there, make the change, and then go back to the workflow and say whether it worked or not. So I think of RPA as one of the tools you need in the tool set, but you also want to have that enterprise-grade API integration and the native automation tools within the work suites that you're using. So I think of it as having a cohesive solution across all of this is really important for these enterprise-grade workflows. Definitely is. Definitely is. Well, when we come back, we do have to talk a lot more about this because there's a lot more to talk about. And my co-hosts are chomping at the bit here behind the scenes to ask some questions. So when we come back, we'll definitely bring them back in as well. But before we do, we do have to thank another great sponsor of this week in enterprise tech, and that's PlexTrack. Now, the security management platform that brings you better reports, deeper assessments, and more insights. Now, you, do you spend hours and hours reporting security issues and feel like it's getting in nowhere? Now, are you buried in the data or but still can't get a full picture of your security posture to prioritize remediation efforts? Well, we've got the solution for you. That's right. PlexTrack empowers continuous assessment, automated workflow, and effective collaboration between teams to help cybersecurity professionals do more and less. 
time. Now, create assessment reports in half the time and centralize your remediation efforts across all scans, assessments, and audits through powerful risk visualizations, scanner, and ticketing integrations and enhanced analytics to effectively communicate risks in real time. Whether red or blue, there's a Plex track for every security professional to save time and get the right work done. Now listen, for red teams, they can import findings from numerous vulnerability scanners, include screenshots and videos with auto formatting, create customized templates and export the word with one click. Streamline the report writing process to deliver better reports faster. Blue teams can actually customize internal and external assessment questionnaires, synchronize findings with task management tools like ZeroCloud, assign findings to team members, and track status over time. Now, provide attestation of security posture with robust analytics. Whether you're with a small to medium-sized security consultancy, a full-scale MSSP, or a large enterprise, security teams of all sizes and specialties will work more effectively and efficiently with PlexTrack. Now, PlexTrack is the premier cybersecurity workflow management reporting platform for every professional from practitioner to CISO. That's truly a PlexTrack for every security team. FlexTrack improves the entire security engagement lifecycle by making it easy to generate security reports, deliver them securely, and track the issues to completion straight from the platform. Book a demo today. Try PlexTrack free for one month and see how it can change your life as a security professional. Simply go to PlexTrack.com slash twit and claim your free month. That's P-L-E-X-T-R-E-C dot com slash t-w-i-t and we thank PlexTrack for their support of this week in enterprise tech well folks we've been talking with john cusera senior vp product management at salesforce about the einstein automation process product but i do want to bring my co-host back in because they have a lot of questions here related to this let's start with uh curtis curtis Thanks very much lou you know one of the questions that i have and this is true for pretty much any of the low-code, no-code systems, many of these are promoted as ways for the business unit experts, the subject matter experts, to develop uh, processes uh, without having to involve those uh, nasty people from the software development group. My question is... Are they able to do this effectively while maintaining any semblance of security and privacy, especially if you think about something that might withstand the um, the the hard-eyed gaze of, of auditors if they're in that kind of industry? Sure. Uh, a loaded question for sure. So I think that there's a spectrum of these tools, right? So you have like your personal productivity where, of course, not all of the stuff in there is necessarily going to have all the great data quality and compliance you want. And so when I'm like using a document tool or a spreadsheet or something like that, it's very lightweight, but it's very flexible. Anyone can use it. Then you go like a next rung up and it's like, okay, I want to make some solutions for my team or my department. Uh, For those, there's varying gradients of how much security and bulletproofness and uh, compliance do you need for those. For some industries, it's a lot. And so you need to have tight governance and coordination between the folks building those solutions and all the compliance and regulations and all of that. 
And then you go into the things that are typically managed by either IT or folks close to IT. For those, you're going to have higher uh, levels of governance and needs. And of course, then you have the developers and more. So the way I think about this is there's a different range of solutions that benefit different personas. Where we're really focused on is not that I'm building something for me or my team so much. We can do that. But where we're really powerful is having those folks close to IT and IT building these enterprise-grade workflows. And so the key that we want to focus on is how do we ensure that our customers can give access permissions to these trusted business analysts that meet compliance They can be overseen by the IT folks. They're monitored. You know when there's an error. You can route the problems to the right people with clear authority of who's supposed to be fixing them. So that if this is a business critical process, you have the coverage you need. And so that's one of the great benefits we like about the Salesforce brand promise with Einstein Automate. You have that low to pro code solution, and we have that seamlessly in one platform so that these citizen developers and IT can get along, and IT can have trusted verification of what these citizen developers are doing. You know, I like that idea of trusted verification because I suspect, I'll pose this as a question, that it also handles situations like those that that were infamous a few years ago where someone in a business unit would use a tool like this, uh, some sort of low-code tool to develop, you know, a, a workflow for them. Yep. But it just so happened that they needed to reach in and get information from an enterprise source. And so all of a sudden, some of the, you know, either ingestion or data flow licensed uh, databases were seeing the cost of the organization skyrocket because lots of people who hadn't talked to IT were suddenly reaching in and grabbing data. Is that something that's also covered in in this sort of of product? Let me give you an example with MuleSoft and how we're thinking about MuleSoft Composer for that cross-system integration and MuleSoft Anypoint, which is that pro-code solution for API management and integration. What we do is we say, okay, Uh, You folks using Composer, here is all of the great connectivity that you have to all these solutions, Salesforce, NetSuite, Google Suite, and more. IT, hey, it's on the same platform. You know what? You can have visibility to what these folks are doing. You can create these access permissions for which connectors should they have access to. How are folks authenticating? How can you ensure that there is continuity after folks leave the company or transition or roles change? And then how can you further expose these pro-code building blocks, in this case, the professionally created APIs, to the line of business folks with that access control and monitoring so that you understand what folks are doing? So it drastically reduces the risk and the limits of those scenarios you're talking about where somebody is trying to access or use data in a way that's not known or unintended, which either creates compliance risk or costs. And so we have a lot of those controls to try to help our customers do the right thing from the outset, but still give them the flexibility to do what they need with the tools. All right. I've got one more question. And and this is something that that really looks at Salesforce's role as a platform, because I know there are many, many companies uh, that make modules, that make functions, that make libraries available for use by existing Salesforce customers. 
One of the big questions that a lot of enterprise people have regards third-party risk, uh, especially the, the risk of the dependencies that can exist within various software development uh, routines. Uh, is that something that is an issue with with this product? Do you do you allow people to bring in uh, modules or or libraries developed by others, or or is this a more self-contained, closely controlled Salesforce effort uh, where you keep your your fingers on the pulse of the dependencies? It's a little bit of both. So we have a fantastic ecosystem that we call the App Exchange. We empower ISVs to use Salesforce technology to extend it, to customize it, give them a way to put that into a container, we call it a package, and then let that be installed by customers that purchase the solution. They can also include custom code, third-party libraries, references to other modules, as you're mentioning. What we do for those that are listed on the App Exchange is we have both programmatic and people, security experts, review the solutions. We then generate those security reports to say, hey, this is not adhering to how we expect either your Salesforce code or your custom code to work. We need you to correct this before you can list it. And then we do periodic reviews as well. So think of it as uh, one of those app store review processes. We actually were the original app store before the mobile ones came around. Then we do still let those ISVs uh, integrate using APIs, use their other code in a way that uh, allows them to have that flexibility and power. So we have a good amount of controls, but also a good amount of flexibilities so that these ISVs, many of them have literally built billion-dollar businesses on the Salesforce platform, which is the same platform we're talking about for Einstein Automate. I remember when you guys came out with the the App Store. They actually put a pretty big ripple through the market. So that was a really cool day. I do want to also bring back in uh, Brian as well. Brian? Hey, so I was just recently involved with Make a Fair in Orlando. And I've been volunteering at a um, thing called Give Kids the World Village, where they cater to wish children. Anyway, <clears throat> to the point, I was absolutely flabbergasted that both organizations are using Salesforce. And I've always kind of stayed away because I always had this image of Salesforce being for big organizations and it costs a lot of money and it was hard to get started and I had to make a giant investment if I wanted to get in. And then I'm starting to learn, no, that's not right. So here's my question. How does a smaller company, small mom and pop store, get access to Salesforce, learn about it, and make use of things like Einstein Automate. You know, I'm a 501c3. Can I afford this? Absolutely. So uh, Salesforce was founded with the 111 principle where we gave 1% of our profits, 1% of people's time, and also 1% of our equity to nonprofit organizations. Nonprofits can sign up for the Nonprofit Starter Pack, a Salesforce edition, with no cost for the first 10 users. Included in there is a lot of the powerful process automation we're talking about here. Folks can get started simply with things like, okay, when I have a donation request, I want to check if the person that donated it was from this type of organization. If so, I'm going to add a task or I'm going to update this field. They can use these easy point and click tools to do that automation within that. They can further extend it with the powerful tools where they need. I've been super impressed with how many of our nonprofits 
are so sophisticated in all of the power Salesforce can bring because it's the platform they use for so many parts of their organization. And then for other non-profits, I guess for-profit companies, you can get started with things like essentials. This is for like one to 10 person companies where you want to manage your relationships for your customers. You want to have your task management for your sales. You want to have that easy service so that you can handle those requests. Similarly, we have all of this getting started automation in an easy to consume way. So folks could, should go check out the websites, whether it's for our nonprofit and foundation organizations or essentials for small businesses. So what website, where can I go? What, what kinds of things do our viewers be able to get to without having to make a giant investment? Where do they go? Uh, I'm going to make sure I have my URL right. Salesforce.org slash nonprofit. And so this is the nonprofit cloud. You can sign up for a free trial. You can get access to it and you can get started in literally a minute. That's super cool. Well, thank you so very much. I'm going to toss this back to Lou because sadly, I think we're almost out of time. Yeah, unfortunately, all good things come to an end. John, thank you so much for being here. We're running a little bit low on time, but I want to give you a chance to tell the folks at home where people can learn more about Einstein Automate and just how they can get started on that as well. Sure. So like everything, you can go to your most favorite search engine that you like to use, type in Salesforce Einstein Automate. That'll take you to our wonderful websites. We also have fantastic trails for those that want to get a little bit deeper and more hands-on through Salesforce Trailhead. And so that's salesforce.com, Einstein Automate, and also in Trailhead, uh, you can go and search for Einstein Automate as well so that you can figure out how to automate all of your customer and employee workflows using these low-code tools. Thanks, John. I see what you did there, your favorite uh, search engine. And maybe you.com might be our favorite sooner or later as well. Thanks, John, again for being here. Well, folks, you've done it again. You sat through another hour of the best dang enterprise podcast in the universe. So tune your podcatcher to Twilight. I want to thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially to my co-host, starting with our very own Mr. Brian Chi Chibert. Thank you so much for all your support. What's going on for you in the coming weeks? Where could people find you? Well, I am going to continue. Um, my buddy, Jim Ainge over in Honolulu, we, we built a wireless internet service provider together. <clears throat> He's been kind of bugging me. I need to go and finish building his appliance um, for Speedify. So I have most of the parts and I'm getting ready to do the integration and try and get it all together because we want to be able to go and bond multiple LTE modems together without having to spend a ton of money. Well, that project and others I talk about on Twitter and my Twitter handle is A-D-V-N-E-T-L-A-B, Advanced Net Lab. You're also more than welcome to throw me an email. I'm Chebert, spelled C-H-E-E-B-E-R-T at twit.tv. And if you want to throw something at all the Twiat hosts, use twiat at twit.tv. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I'm still going to kind of take a poke at the uh, person that is downloading the episodes at McMurdo Sound Science Station. I'd really like to hear from you. Um, I keep being told you're still there. So drop me a line if you would. Anyway, um, for those folks on, you know, various other continents, don't be afraid. 
if you don't speak English, that's fine. As long as you're willing to let me use a machine language, tra- tra- you know, machine translator like Google Translate or Microsoft Translate, and you're willing to put up with machine translation, I'm more than happy to have a conversation with you, especially if you want some resources that we talk about on the show. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your show ideas. Anyway, everybody take gr- take care of each other. Uh, Stay away from these nasty COVID-19 mutations, and we hope you have a great holiday season. Thank you, Chibert. Well, we also have to thank our very own Mr. Curtis Franklin as well. Curtis, what's going on for you in the coming weeks, and where can people find you and all of your work? Well, I'm doing research and uh, writing some reports, getting ready for a webinar on December 14th. Uh, on how to figure out whether or not your cybersecurity awareness training is being effective, uh, but mostly getting ready to roll into 2022, uh, setting the stage for a lot of uh, deep research, looking forward to writing more and keeping up with what's going on in the industry. If people want to keep up with me, they should do so on Twitter at KG4GWA. Or on Instagram at Kurt underscore Franklin. Thank you, Curtis. Well, folks, we also have to thank you as well. You're that person who drops in each and every week to watch our show and get our get your enterprise and IT goodness. So we want to make it easy for you to listen and catch up on your IT news. Go to our show page right now, twit.tv slash twiet. There you'll find all of our amazing back episodes, show notes, co-host information, guest information, and the links of the stories we do during the show. But more importantly, next to those videos you see there, you'll see the helpful subscribe and download like support the show by getting your audio version video version of your choice listen on any one of your devices or any one of your podcast applications because we're on all of them and we definitely want you to subscribe and support the show plus you may have heard of it we talk about it all the time on here and we love it it's club twit that's right it's a members only ad free podcast service with a bonus twit plus feed that you can't get anywhere else that's right it's only seven dollars a month and you can one of my favorite things on there is also that exclusive members only discord channel we have some great conversations awesome channels in there so diverse set of channels in there talk about cooking talk about tech talk about hardware you want to talk about it we got it in there. It's a, a conversation is happening all over the place. Plus, we do live chat during the show as well. So definitely check out the Twit Club Twit. Go right now to join the club, twit.tv slash club twit. Now, also remember, Club Twit also offers corporate group plans as well. It's a great way to give your team access to our ad-free tech podcast. The plans start with five members at a discounted rate of $6 each per month, and you can get as many seats as you like. And this is a great way for your IT department, developers, and tech teams to stay up to date with access to all of our podcasts. And just like regular memberships, they can join that Twit Discord server and get the bonus Twit Plus feed as well. So twit.tv slash Club Twit. Now, after you subscribe, press your friends, your family members, your coworkers. It's it's the holiday times. Give them the gift of Twi because we, we talk a lot about fun tech topics on this show, and we definitely think that they will find it interesting and fun as well. So definitely share it with them and have them subscribe. Now, after you've subscribed, guess what? We do the show live. That's right, live on one thirty p.m. Pacific time on Fridays. You can check that out at live.twit.tv. Come see how the pizza's made, the behind the scenes, all the fun stuff, all the banter we do here at Twit. Definitely check the live feed out. And if you're going to watch the show live, we also have the infamous 
IRC channel as well. The chat channel that we have, irc.twit.tv. We have some great characters in there. I love naming them because, you know, they make me sound funny. Chickenhead is in there. Reverb Mike, Chumley, Loquacious. All the great characters. They're here every week supporting us. Thank you for all your support. And of course, join them. Be part of that great community as well. So definitely hit me up also at twitter.com slash Lou MM. There I post all my enterprise tidbits. I love having conversations with people like you. In fact, I got some great direct messages recently about show topics. So I had some great, awesome conversations about that. So definitely check that out. Throw some show ideas our way. We, we take them on. We take them in. We take all of them in. We consider them. We have some great some conversations. So definitely do that. Of course, also, if you want to hit all the hosts, again, hit twiet at twit.tv and we'll have some great conversation there as well. Now, if you want to check out what I do during my normal work week at Microsoft, I you can post, we post great, great stuff over there at developers.microsoft.com slash office. There you can find all the latest and greatest ways to customize your office solutions to make it more productive for you and your organization. So definitely check that out. I do want to thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially to Leo and Lisa. They continue to support This Week Enterprise Tech each and every week, and we couldn't do the show without them. So thank you for all their support over the years. Of course, I thank all the engineers and staff at Twit as well, because again, without them, we couldn't do the show. And of course, I want to thank Mr. Brian Chi just one more time, because he's not only our co-host, but he's also our tireless producer as well. He does all the bookings for the show, the plans for the show, and we really couldn't do the show without him. So thank you, Chibert, for all your support. Now, before we sign out, I do want to thank our editor, Mr. Victor B. He's the guy behind the scenes. He's the guy who slices and dices and clears up all of our, clears up all my stutters and makes me look good. So thank you, Victor, for all your support, making us look good year after year. Plus, I want to also take uh, thank our technical director for today. He's a talented Mr. Ant Pruitt. He does a fabulous show. I watch it every week. Hands-on photography. Now, Ant, what's going on in this week? I can't wait to watch it. What's going on this week in the show? Well, sir, thank you for watching. And uh, this week, I wanted to talk about moon photography because you know what? Y'all got all these fancy smartphones and stuff. And I see some of those moon pictures y'all posting on Instagram and they don't look very good. So <laughs> I got some tips for you. You don't have to have a fancy camera. You can do this stuff with the smartphone. So go check out hop um, twit.tv slash H O P. Now I'm hoping you also, cause I, I do have a fancy camera. In fact, I have this fancy lens that I take photography of moons and it still doesn't look good. So do you give us some tips on that as well? I sure do, sir. All right. All right. <laughs> Good deal. Good deal. All right. Thanks, Ant. Well, until next time, I'm Louis Moresco. Just reminding you, if you want to know what's going on in the enterprise, just keep quiet. Hey, you don't have to wait to the weekend to get the tech news you need. Join Jason Howell and myself, Micah Sargent, for Tech News Weekly, where we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news.